1208. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Eric Bilstead, this shows, I think, how we here at WTMJ pay attention to our listeners. We are live streaming. We do this about the first half hour of every day show. We live stream on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, and you can see it as we go about our business. I guess it's kind of the royal week because you can watch me as I go about my business. But interestingly... I think it was last Thursday or Friday. You were in the studio at the time, and we had a uh, a comment from one of the listeners who said, well, why aren't you looking at the camera? And I said, well, because the camera was, was way off to my right, mm-hmm. and all the stuff that I have in front of me is straight ahead. So it would have been awkward to look into the camera. So in response to that, now we've moved the camera. <laughs> so the camera is yep. now like, I, I, it's the full Monty going straight on. You know what? There will be more complaining, though, because the mic's in front of your face now. Well, okay, well, there's only so much you can do about that. But we we are, in fact, responsive, and you can check yeah, it out, facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. Okay, I didn't tell you this. You know what the, my big deal, my big thing of the Labor Day weekend was? What? I bought an e-bike. Ooh, really? My my wife has been trying to, I haven't read, I have not been on a bicycle in probably 35 years. All right. But my wife, um, a couple of her sisters and their, and my brothers-in-law have them and she's been wanting to get them. We got an anniversary coming up. So we went out to the local e-bike dealer and I, I, we test rode them on Sunday and the guy delivered on Monday. So we've got these e-bikes. So what does that mean? You don't have to pedal? How does it well, work? Well, no, no, no. The way it works is it, it's got, it's got a battery assist. Now the ones I have a, I have a Trek Verve is what it is. You have to pedal. But you can set, and in matter of fact, you don't have to turn it on. So you could just use it as a regular sure, bicycle. Okay. But it's got like four settings, starting in econ- economy mode, and then sport, and then turbo. Um, you, so you have to pedal. But it's depending on how you have it set, it gives you an assist. So if you're going uphill, you know, <laughs> you, you could set it on turbo, right? And it kind of like takes off. And it, it's very cool. In the economy mode, you can get 60 miles wow. out of the thing. Not that I'm going to be riding at 60 <laughs> miles or anything, but it's, 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 it's actually kind of cool. And uh, again, for, for people who are trying to get back into it, I mean, mm-hmm. cause the reality is, if I had gotten a bike at my age and I have not been on one for 35 years, I'm not going to be riding up hills and right, stuff, but this right. gets you out and you, you're still pedaling. So, cause it's, it's power assist. So I'm looking forward Ooh, to this. For you. Uh, well, uh, well, we'll, we'll see. I think, I think a certain part of my anatomy might be a bit sore, you know, <laughs> after a while, but we, we haven't had a chance to take them out on an extensive they have bike ride yet. They, well, that's, that's exactly it. So I got the e-bike. So I'm going to, I'm going to be in shape. Keep tuning in to Facebook live and I'm just going to, I'm going to be melting away. We'll be down 20 pounds or something like that pretty soon. We will see. All right. We have a lot of stuff to talk about on today's program. And again, first segment or two of the program, we live stream facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. Um, coming up on today's show, there's a lot of things. The new Bob Woodward book is out of Woodward and Bernstein. It, well, it's actually the excerpts are out. The book drops next week. It does not paint a pretty picture of the Trump administration. I'm going to share some excerpts with you in the 1 o'clock hour, and we're going to discuss whether or not you believe that. Democrats are turning the Brett Kavanaugh hearings into a political you-know-what show. I think that that is going to backfire big time. Colin Kaepernick is a spokesman for Nike. I think that's already backfiring big time and lots more. But I want to start out with a story from the world of sports. It is the hunt for brew October. That's what we call it around here. The Brewers are in the heat of a pennant race. They are four games behind the Chicago Cubs. But I have to go back and double check, but I think they've got the second best best, best record in the National League. They are 
the leaders right now, if the season ended today, they would host the one-game wild card, wild card play-in. Their opponent would be the St. Louis Cardinals. But you know, you, you never want to go to a one-game play-in to get into the playoffs. But if you do, you certainly want to be the home team. And they're leading the Cardinals by a game and a half. They're chasing the Cubs by four games. Uh, the Cubs just don't lose that much. But if somehow the Brewers were to overhaul them, that would be a, a big deal. The Cubs... And the Brewers. The Cubs had the Brewers number early on this year. I think they won seven of the first nine games. And the last several games, the Brewers have kind of turned it around. Yesterday, and I was not at the game yesterday, yesterday, uh, win in the bottom of the ninth inning, you know, very, very, uh, a very, very dramatic sort of win. Brewers get game one. It was a sellout. 44,000 people were there. And this was, I mean, again, it's not the playoffs, but yesterday's game was as significant a regular season game as I think you can have in early September. 44,000 people there. The reports are it was probably a majority of Cubs fans. Now, this is not necessarily something that is unusual. If you have gone to Miller Park over the years, um, a lot of times it has become Wrigley Field Central. Lots of people from Chicago coming up to the game. Also, a lot of Cub fans in this area, people who perhaps grew up when we didn't have that brief period of time, when we didn't have Major League Baseball um, in Milwaukee. They became fans of the Cubs, and they, they've stayed fans for for a lifetime. Um, additionally, it's very tough to get a ticket at Wrigley Field. So what happens is uh, people say, well, it's cheaper just to drive up here, attend the games in Milwaukee, and buy the tickets. Now, I go to, I've got partial season tickets, so I go to 20 games through that plan. I probably go to about 30 games a year, all all told. And I've been to a couple Cubs games this year. I'm going to go to the game on Wednesday night. And I sit, you know, on the first level in the, the season ticket holder thing. My general sense is the Cub fans that are there are Cub fans that have purchased their tickets on the secondary market. Because generally speaking, at least where I'm noticing a lot of the Cub fans sitting, it's not necessarily, you know, where we just walk up and buy a ticket. It's my guess is they have purchased them on the secondary market, which means they have purchased them from season ticket holders who have sold their tickets to the game. Now, I bring this background up because Cole Hamels, who is the pitcher that just came over to the Chicago Cubs. He, he probably had his greatest days with the, the Philadelphia Phillies. He was the starting pitcher yesterday. He ended up losing the game, um, or he probably what he would no decision, but you know, he, he's been pitching very, very well. Anyhow, after the game, they ask him about the Brewers Cubs rivalry. And here's what he has to say. And I'm quoting, I know the rivalries I've had in the past meaning other teams he's played for. And you can definitely feel it. When you have majority Cubs fans in the stands, meaning in the stands at Miller Park, I don't know if it's a rivalry yet. They're not going to like me for that comment, but you can look at the ticket sales. I think when they start getting a little bit closer and their fans sell out, I think that's kind of the understanding. But Cubs fans travel well, and they were representing us pretty well. It's no knock on who they have in the dugout. They have great players, and I know all those guys want to win. But in this great game of baseball, you want to see the fans in the stands, and obviously that's where you feel it the most. To be able to see the Cubs fans travel in the masses they do, it's great to see. 
I was able to see that in Philly when we would come down and play Washington. It's just kind of the nature of where it is. It's probably not going to sit too well with Brewers fans, but I think they probably observed it just as well as I did. And he's referring to the point that Brewers fans let the Cubs fans essentially take over Miller Park yesterday in about as meaningful, like I say, a a regular season baseball game you can have in early September. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, this this kind of stings. But is Cole Hamels telling the truth? Are Brewers fans, I don't know, a little bit second rate because many of them give up their tickets or allow the Cub fans to take over Miller Park? Is that a fair criticism of Brewers fans? 414-799-1620. And for any of you who've been to any of the recent Cubs games, you know, what, what is, what in fact is your reaction? I'm already on record as saying that individually, I think Cubs fans are great. Collectively, you get a bunch of them together, especially if their team is ahead and there's a lot of obnoxious behavior going on. But that said, Cole Hamels is saying, I don't know that we have a true rivalry until the Brewers fans really kind of step it up. Should Brewers fans be ashamed of the fact that they let Miller Park be taken over game after game after game? 414-799-1620. I'll give you my take, and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Once again, we're live streaming Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, 1217 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Again, live streaming the segment, Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Dan texts, my brother has partial season tickets. He refuses to go to the Cubs games due to the obnoxious and sometimes violent behavior of their so-called fans. He has witnessed violent attacks of Brewers fans. 414-799-1620. Bill in Menominee Falls. Bill, good afternoon. <laughs> Hello, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Well, I will piggyback on, disagree with what you said about uh, individually Cubs fans are okay, and piggyback on that text message. And Cubs fans are the most obnoxious people God has ever put on this earth. And I know a lot of people, and I'm one of them, that will probably go to 30, 35 games this year, but I refuse to go when the Cubs are in town just because I do not want to deal with obnoxious Cubs fans. I'd rather sit at home and listen to the radio and stuff around the house and of course, you, you, you understand, though, the flip side, though, by then making a decision not to go is that you make it easier for the Cubs fans to get tickets and to take over Miller Park. I, I understand that. So it's which came first, the chicken or the egg? Right. You know, <laughs> did, the, did, did the Cubs fans take over Miller Park when people were coming? Or did people decide not to come because the Cubs fans are so obnoxious? And it's, and it's not just, just the fact that. There right now it's probably seventy five percent, twenty five percent. But even back when both teams were bad, right. the Brewers were only drawing twenty five thousand people, and there were only five thousand Cubs fans. Just the chance of running into two of those obnoxious Cubs fans back then was enough to keep me away during Cubs games. Okay, you say, Bill, you, you go to about thirty games or so a year, maybe thirty five. Do you yeah. think the Cubs fans are the most? obnoxious fans that come from, because I mean, I go to a lot of the games, and I mean, I see fans from all the different teams that are there. Are the Cubs fans the worst? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I talk to Cardinals fans, and while they are a little uppity about Cardinal baseball, you know, they're still knowledgeable fans, and if the Brewers play well, you know, they'll acknowledge a good play and things like that, where Cubs fans are just, oh, the Brewers suck, they got lucky, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter what happens on the field. And a lot of them, let's face it, I think are just bandwagon jumpers. Since the Cubs got good, 
mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're coming up here. Where mm-hmm. in the past, you know, the Brewers fans weren't coming because the Brewers weren't as good. But, you know, I, I think you have to look at the overall attendance of how many people the Brewers have drawn the last couple of years, you know, over 2 million, and yeah. look at attendance on a Wednesday night game against San Diego. San Diego or Colorado. Oh. There's still 32, 35,000 right. people in this game. Right. No, so, no, thanks for calling. No, it's interesting, you know, because Jay Sorgi of, of our – from our, you know, from our uh, weblog, what, what Jay did ran kind of the numbers, and and right now the Brewers are tenth in the major league in attendance, which is really amazing considering the size of this market. And he said that even if you just took the average, took out took out the Cubs games, and, and just did the average, so it, we would still be tenth. So it it's, I mean, Brewers fans, I I think are great. I guess the question becomes, do you fault Brewers fans? for selling their tickets? And is it because you just don't want to deal with the obnoxious Cubs fan? Or is it because, hey, there, there's money to be made. If, if I've got a ticket that I pay 60 bucks for, and during the Cubs weekend, I know I can sell it for like 200 Is do you fault people for doing that? Patrick in West Bend. Patrick, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Patrick. I'm good. What do you think? Uh, hey, I'm a season ticket holder. I go uh, full season tickets. Oh. Uh, was at the game last night. Great game. I'll be at the game tonight. I will not sell my tickets, especially to the Cubs games. Um, I think Milwaukee Brewer fans are putting greed before loyalty to the team. You can, I understand that. You can make a lot of your season ticket money back by selling to Cub fans, but it makes it absolutely miserable for the rest of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm in club seats right behind Euchre, right, right behind home plate. And I'll tell you, there had to be, out of 50 people, 40, 45 Cub fans. It was terrible. <laughs> it was, if I want to be abused that much, I'll go down to Wrigley Field. I don't want to do it at Miller Park. <laughs> so you think in your section it, it was like 90-10% and it was Cubs yeah, fans? And I, yeah, at least two to two to one across the stadium, maybe three or four to one. It was ridiculous. Brewer fans need to stand up and support their team, especially against Chicago. One of the Cubs fans said something interesting to me. I said, you know, I turned around and said, you're really obnoxious. you got a really good team, but you're really obnoxious. He goes, yeah, and next year your seat will be for sale to Cub fans. <laughs> and you were thinking, no, no, they said, no, no, no. But I mean, I guess it, I mean, it is true. I, I will tell you, let's see, the, the seat, I just got this, I just renewed my 20 game season ticket package. For for next year, and the seats I sit in, it's a thousand dollars for seat. That so figured out. So I mean, I guess you know, I'm thinking. Well, if you could have sold those two seats, like I said, we're not going to sell them. We're going Wednesday night. But if you could get two hundred dollars a piece, all right, there, there, you've already covered for that one game. For you know, for the for the one game, if you can get two hundred bucks, you've covered twenty percent of the cost right there. I mean, I guess I understand the economics. I would never sell though. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think? Our Brewer. I mean, Hamill says it's not a rivalry because Brewers fans don't show up. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that statement, but um, the reality of it is, quite frankly, I think it's like I told your screener, I think it's, it's just monetary driven. I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing. You get the, the same problem with uh, up at Lambeau Field when Vikings come in. Same deal. You see a ton of, you know, all the season ticket holders, a lot of them sell, you know, especially in a gold package one, you know, a lot of them they'll, right. they'll sell, they'll sell their tickets. But, um, you know, I think, you know, let's face it, 
This is coupon cutting country. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like like I say, it, it's the math. Let, let's say you've got a, and again, I, I, I'm sitting in the, the the kind of the more expensive seats, so it's a thousand dollars for twenty seats. If you can sell that ticket for two hundred, two hundred fifty bucks, you you know you have covered, yeah. a, you know, <laughs> you've covered right. a whole bunch of, you've covered five of your games right there. Yeah, exactly. So, and, you, and you're missing one game. I mean, you can, you know, I mean, right. It's not like, uh, especially if you're a full, you know, a full season, right? Season, you know, but then then. Then it even makes more sense economically. Right. Okay, but is that not? Are, are you then? Are you not being a true fan if you do that? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I still think you're a true fan just because you bought a full full season. Right? Yeah, because you're committing to to do that. You're Correct. just trying to you're just trying to make some dough. Thank, thanks for going ahead. And it's it's kind of like okay, well, if you want to come up, if you want to come up here, um, that's great. I, I, look, I don't fault people for doing that. I will tell you this. I would prefer they not, though. But I mean, I, I, I understand there's money to be made. And I, I will say this. I mean, I know a lot of people are unhappy with what Cole Hamill said yesterday. But here, and this comes from the perspective of somebody who stays up till one o'clock in the morning, you know, waiting through rain delays, watching Brewers games or listening to the games and, and who, who goes to a bunch of the games. Um, I, I think there is an element of truth to, to what he says. I understand the economics of it. But as long as Brewers fans are selling their tickets to make money and would rather have the dough than, you know, go to the game and support the team, I, I get what Hamels is saying. And, and maybe the fact is the truth hurts a little bit. But I, I will tell you, I just and I, I think I've been to two Cubs games, Brewers Cubs games this year as part of my package. And I'm going again on Wednesday. And it is kind of difficult when you're sitting there and you're looking around and you are you you are surrounded like eight out of the ten fans are, are wearing you know the Cubs uniforms. I I get the economics, not criticizing people for doing that, but you know what? I think you know this is a special team, and maybe maybe it deserves a little bit better. So I'm not going to fault Hamels. You, you don't want to kill the messenger. He might have something for all the rest of us to think about. Bottom line though is the Brewers won the game yesterday, and that's the most important thing. And hopefully they'll win the second game of the series tonight. All right, twelve twenty eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We're going to move on. Lots of people went away on this, but when we come back, another story sort of from the world of sports. Nike decides it's going to make Colin Kaepernick their spokesperson. Stick around. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. You know, a number of people have been telling me about how they, if they can't listen to the show live for three hours, what they do is they subscribe to the podcast. And matter of fact, I just saw the podcast numbers for August, and lots of you do that, and I very much appreciate it. You can go to WTMJ.com, click on the mobile app thing. You can subscribe to the Wagner podcast, and we post it every day, and you'll get to hear it so you can listen to it at your leisure. Your Milwaukee Bucks are playing their first full year in Pfizer Forum. Text Bucks to 414-799-1620 to see the full 82-game schedule. Yeah, Bucks schedule is out as well. Okay, everybody knows Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick is the former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers who started the NFL protests on social justice by kneeling. He has not played in the NFL since 2016. He has been under contract to Nike since 2011, you know, as one of their, their spokespeople. Uh, you know, Nike, of course, their, their slogan is just do it. Nike, despite the fact that Kaepernick has not 
played since 2016 and remains unsigned. I mean, who, who knows if he's ever going to play again? He's got a grievance against the NFL alleging collusion. Nike has just rolled out its new Just Do It campaign, and Colin Kaepernick is the athlete that they are they are featuring. Now, they're going to feature some others as well, but it, it's Colin Kaepernick, the guy at Nike let me see. I have what they, they say here. This is how they describe Colin Kaepernick. We believe Colin is one of the most inspirational athletes of this generation who has leveraged the power of sport to help move the world forward. We wanted to energize its meaning and introduce Just Do It to a whole new generation of athletes. And so then the different stories you look at say apparently Nike was on the fence. They were deciding, okay, do, do we continue to renew this guy's contract or alternatively, do we go all in? And they have decided to go all in. They will produce new Kaepernick apparel, including a shoe and a T-shirt. Um, they also say that if the merchandise sells, the value of the deal will rival those of other top NFL players. Um, okay, Nike is also going to donate money to Kaepernick's Know Your Rights campaign. The response has been sort of instantaneous. Um, a number of the critics say, okay, well, <laughs> immediately after this was announced, a number of people began posting pictures of socks and shoes being defaced or destroyed or declaring that uh, they would be switching allegiances to Brooks or Converse or Adidas. Now, keep in mind, Nike owns Converse. Uh, country star John Rich showed off a pair of Nike logos that had been removed from his sound man socks. Videos of the pair of shoes being burned went viral. The anti-Nike puns came next. Just don't. Just blew it, etc., etc. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Will there be backlash from this? Is this going to be a success, or has Nike pretty much guaranteed that, well, has Mike has Nike miscalculated? Will this be a huge commercial success, or is this a huge mistake? Jeff sends me a text. I'm not going to destroy or get rid of any of my Nike workout apparel, but I certainly won't be purchasing any more from them. They just want to jump on the political bandwagon. If they truly wanted someone who takes action, they would have gone with someone like J.J. Watts. Another text. I have made my last Nike purchase. I guarantee it. Um, Dan texts. Smart idea to annoy half their potential customers. When asked why he didn't make political statements, Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy sneakers too. 414-799-1616. Twenty. All right. Mistake or not? My take on this, while Gru is lining up the phone calls, I, I Nike is doing this to make a political statement, and it will appeal to a certain segment of the population. Big picture, though, I think this hurts their brand for exactly what one of the texters said. I, I think for a lot of us, We want a separation between our products and between the political views of of the athletes. I I, and look and see. There's some things that if you're in a niche, it it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily matter. You can be as political as you want, and it's not going to hurt you. But Nike Nike is out there, and they're trying to sell 
expensive sneakers to the parents of kids who, you know, are appalled at the protests, just as well as they're trying to sell them to parents of the kids who, you know, applaud the protests. Why you would decide to make yourself so completely and totally political and maybe even short term, there's going to be a sale of merchandise. Long term, I think this hurts their brand. Now, again, Nike gets to do whatever they want. I'm not saying they shouldn't do this. If they think it's going to be good marketing, I just don't think I see it. Jeff on the south side. Jeff, you're first. Good afternoon. Say, as I was telling your announcer, I don't understand you, your show, and everybody else. This guy, the Nike's doing it on their free time. They're not, they're giving him what he wants. And I didn't agree with him kneeling. I don't agree in the kneeling. But now he's trying to make it a point. And everybody, I don't know, why burn the shoes? Why is, I mean, what, what's going on there? Well, I, well, first of all, I, I didn't say I was burning the shoes. I was saying I don't think it's a good business move for Nike because this is clearly by doing this with him and making Colin Kaepernick the face of your campaign, you are aligning yourself with that segment. You're aligning yourself with the Colin Kaepernicks and the NFL protesters of the world. That That is the effect. Now, the corporation gets to make that decision. But the question becomes, is that going to turn off people? Now, it's going to sell some sick. I have no doubt that some people are going to say, oh, this is great. You know, we want to do it. But big picture, is it going to help or hurt? The NFL took a hit last year, and I don't think there's any question that part of it, not all of it, but part of it was due to these anthem protests. You know, would would Nike have been better off going with a J.J. Watt, just for, for instance, as opposed to do you want Colin Kaepernick to be the face of your brand? That's where they have a right to do it. I just think it's the mistake. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Leonard on the north side. Leonard, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Leonard. Uh, thank you for sure. taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I just think I talked to your screener about the demographics of this. Do you not think that Nike, with all its money, did not do their research before making this decision? To the demographics, who buys T-shirts, who buys tennis shoes, 65-year-old guys in the suburbs or 25-year-old kids in the city. And so you think that you're you're getting rid of or or, put, uh, or obscuring a certain part of your market. That market doesn't really even buy Nike. Well, no, but, but, but it does. But there are the, the 40-something suburban parents who are buying the shoes research. for their high school kids? Well, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't they know. Have to. Okay, so you. You but, know how many millions? How many millions of dollars does Nike? Cor- make? Corporations make miscal. I mean, thanks to God, corporations make miscalculations all the time. I, that, and that's the thing. Yes, yes, I agree. I mean, right. Obviously, the larger market is going to be for you know the the seventeen and eighteen year olds, and it's going to be for the sixty seven year olds. But but those 15 and 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds, they're not the ones buying the shoes. It's mom and dad buying the shoes. And are, are mom and dad going to rally around the Colin Kaepernick, or would they be more inclined to rally somewhere else? I I, I think it's the latter. I Again, I and you say corporations don't make mistakes. Well, okay, I, I, you know, two words, New Coke. Remember New Coke? That, that was the thing. We're, we're going to want New Coke. And then, of course, it, you know, it turned out. 
again, it, it could be brilliant. And I don't doubt that there's going to be some people who are going to say, gee, I, this is what I want to do. I want to make a political statement, and I, I like what Colin Kaepernick's doing with social justice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the same time, there, there are many reasons why this guy isn't in the NFL, and it's not collusion, but I think it's a calculation that he is such a hot potato that if you bring him onto a team, he's going to be a distraction, and he's just not worth the effort for that. What you're going to get out of him isn't worth all that. And so, I, I, I mean, I, Nike, obviously Nike is trying to appeal. They want to be edgy. They, they want to identify themselves with the social justice warriors and things like that, and that's fine. They have the right to do it. I'm just not sure it's going to work out for them. Tony in Brookfield. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, guys. I'm really glad I didn't buy a Packers uh, jersey made by Nike last year. Huh. I'm glad I have the old jersey. So, right. Because I won't be buying any more Packers jerseys while Nike's making them. Really? My, be- daughter, my, daughter won't be, my daughter won't be wearing any Nike apparel. She's two and a half. Well, right, and I mean, and and you're the, I mean, at least for a period of time, you know, you're you're going to be the one that's making the purchases for your kid or kids. You know, that, so yeah, you're going to say no, you can't have those shoes. You know, we'll, we'll get your shoes, but you're going to get Adidas. You're not going to get the Nikes. Right, and, and as for the guy who just called and said, you know, they they went out and they did their marketing work. So did Coke, and they brought out new Coke, and how'd that right. work out for them? Well, right. I mean, people. I mean, thanks for calling. No, I mean, Nike is trying. Nike is trying to be edgy. And and that's fine for some things, and and maybe people really won't care. I mean, um, I, I have, you know, I, I have a number of you know people are texting saying, "Oh, we we love Nike," you know, we're going to continue to buy it, and and that's you know that's fine, but at the same time, he he is a hot potato. There, there's just no question about it, and he's made himself the, the hot potato. So now the issue is going to be, you know, does that, is it going to work or isn't it going to work? And uh, again, I, I think my prediction is this is going to be an epic, it's an epic fail. Let's talk to Mark in Kenosha. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. What do you think? Say, I think that it's going to be just the opposite, but I'll tell you why. Um, Anytime you open your mouth nowadays, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you're going to have people that agree with you and people that disagree. Nike knows this because they, they sell millions of dollars worth of product. So they know as soon as they say one thing or another, they're going to have a bunch of people on their side and a bunch of people against them. But what it boils down to is the, the core issue behind Colin Kaepernick, what he drew attention to, and they're trying to make sure they stay on the right side of history by support, in, in their eyes, by supporting what they feel is the, the right person to stand behind and and that's where that issue really lies so you think they are trying to make a political statement with this oh of course they are because otherwise they never would have touched them like you said the reason no other teams have brought them on is because they don't think it's worth it and nike's trying to say we do think it's worth it and because of these issues we're willing to put our necks on the line to show that we support the issues that he's trying to bring to the attention of the country do you think they're going to be right in that calculation i sure hope so but i don't know Okay, good enough. Well, that that and that's that, that's that's the thing. I mean, I guess the question is, right side of history, Colin Kaepernick. I don't know if Colin Kaepernick, I think, is going to be proven to be on the right side of history because I don't know, I don't know what Colin Kaepernick really stands for, and I don't know what these these protests stand for. 
Um, and again, you talk to the NFL players, and it's all sorts of different things. Every Everybody has a different sort of thing. Nike has the right to do it. Again, don't get me wrong on that. But many, many companies decide in the universe of people that you can get to endorse your products. You know, we, we can go to all sorts of different people, and there's a lot of them that we can go to without getting ourselves in the midst of, of this political issue. They've chosen to go this way. Last caller says, I think they're going to be on the right side of history. Time will tell. Am I going to be burning my Nike stuff? No. Am I going to be running out of my way to buy more Nike stuff? Not necessarily either. 1250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in about 12 minutes, I I have excerpts from the new Bob Woodward book, um, and it is not flattering. I'll share with you some of those excerpts, and, and we will discuss whether you think he's nailed the Trump administration or whether this is just another hatchet job. Hey, also, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I've been actually trying to make a point of sending out more tweets just to keep your advice as to what we're going to be doing on the program with some links to some of the stories. Um, it's at Jeff Wagner 620, and that's uh, for Twitter. All right. I, I, I have an update. MMSD, and if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I, I don't pick on MMSD like some people do because – it's they do the best they can with a flawed system. All right, we have gotten a ton of rain around here, right? I'm just it's like for goodness sake, stop raining and it seems like we're gonna have rain off and on for the balance of this week and then maybe it's gonna finally dry out. So I mean I understand that you don't want stuff backing up into people's homes and causing health problems and millions of dollars of damage. But at the same time, is it acceptable to be dumping untreated waste into Lake Michigan, and that's precisely what happened last week. As of Friday evening, now this is before all the rains over the weekend, sewers spilled nearly 297 million gallons of untreated wastewater to waterways. Um, combined sanitary and storm sewers in central Milwaukee and eastern Shorewood, poured, this is the Journal Sentinel, poured an estimated 295.7 million gallons of wastewater, a mix of stormwater and sewage, into the waterways. Now, I, I under, see, here's the problem. We go over this time and time again. In central Milwaukee and in the east side of Shorewood, you have sewer systems. The storm sewers, rain that runs off, combines with the sanitary sewers, the stuff from your sinks and bathtubs and toilets. It all runs into the same thing, and it goes into the deep tunnel. When it rains a lot, the deep tunnel fills up. You can never build a deep tunnel that is big enough for it. So they have no choice but to dump. And as a result, you have, again, the stuff that's coming out of people's toilets, which is being dumped untreated into Lake Michigan. And it's always going to happen until Shorewood and central Milwaukee is forced to do what they should have done decades ago, which is separate the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers like it is in most places. So the sanitary sewers, that goes off to be treated. The storm water just runs off and ends up you know, naturally getting into the lake. And the way we do it now just doesn't work given the fact that we're going to be having all the rain. Again, this isn't a knock on the deep tunnel. I get it. 
They have an imperfect system. They're working with what they have. And when you get these heavy rains, I understand why they end up doing the dumping. They don't have a choice. But we shouldn't be in this situation in the first place. The stuff that is in the sanitary sewers, your baths, your toilets, that should be treated. The stormwater, well, it doesn't hurt to treat it, but the stormwater, it should just be allowed to run off, and then you don't have this problem of dumping, uh, again, the stuff from people's toilets untreated into Lake Michigan. And I guess it just continues to amaze me that we put up with this in this area, dump after dump after dump after dump. And all the people that are out there that are irate that somebody might, you know, be out on a boat and empty their portable toilet into Lake Michigan, appropriately so, stand by and think nothing of this other stuff. It's outrageous. All right, when we come back after the news, I'm going to share with you excerpts from the new uh, book by Bob Woodward. Stick around. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So Eric Bilstead, Khalil Mack, that's the big Khalil Mack, the all-pro linebacker for the Oakland Raiders, formerly the Oakland Raiders, was holding out, was refusing to play over the weekend. They trade him to the Chicago Bears. Yeah. That's this big deal. He hasn't, he did not participate at all in the Oakland Raiders trading camp, hadn't participated in their you know off-season activities, mm-hmm. had, had essentially had no contact with Oakland since February. So he hasn't been doing anything officially football-related since February. Mm-hmm. And did I just hear that Drake's announcement? He's going to play? They think he's going to play Sunday night against the uh, Packers? I'm not surprised that he's going to play, but he may not have the impact he would have had he had a full camp. Well, that, that, see, that's what I was thinking. I mean, what, is it, it, what does it say about about training camp and all this off-season stuff if – if if you can essentially sit all that out, I'm mm-hmm. sure he's been working out, but that's not probably not the same. What does it say if you haven't done anything officially football related from the end of last season until now that you could go and start a regular season? Well, game? right. And but one thing that often has happened in history has shown this that if you do sit for that long, oftentimes you are then. You get hurt. More open to, yeah, no, soft tissue pulls, things like that, hamstring. Right. I mean, that's very possible if you all of a sudden now you're right. back into the swing. Because I, I have to admit, I was kind of surprised at that because, I mean, look, and, you know, people can decide whether they think the Bears gave up too much for him or, or not. I, I don't know anything about that. But I, I was thinking, huh, when you've sat, when you haven't participated in organized activities for that long, it seems to me a little bit reckless to put you on the field because that's exactly what I mean that yeah. that you, you see that all the time for the guys that hold out or the rookies that don't sign their contracts mm-hmm. and they come in and not always but oftentimes right th- there's some injury because yeah. they're just not ready to go at full speed so we'll see. See. yeah we'll that, see. that's I, I was kind of surprised I figured although they'll work him back in and maybe three or four games in you'll see him play um, who knows and and maybe he's just this sort of exceptional super athlete that you can <laughs> do that but he is pretty good uh, well it's um, yeah. All right. Gru, who is producing the show today and always. Let's take a walk down memory lane. Do you know who Bob Woodward is? You do. All right. You do. Bob Woodward, um, of course, came to fame. He, together with his partner at the time at the Washington Post, Carl Bernstein, it was Woodward and Bernstein. They were on the leading edge of breaking the Watergate scandal back in the early 1970s. Uh, their first book that he wrote together with Bernstein all the President's Men. You have perhaps seen the movie. Bob Woodward is played by Robert Redford. Carl Bernstein is played by Dustin Hoffman. So this is the Robert Redford character in the movie. Uh, I, I've actually, 
I, I, I think Bob Woodward has gone on to better things than Carl Bernstein. Bernstein's in, in this, this dust up with CNN right now. He's one of the CNN reporters who, um, w- was involved in, in making the claim that's now been discredited based on anonymous sources that, that Trump had advanced knowledge of this Russia meeting and stuff. I, I, I think. I, I have a lot of respect for Woodward. That, let me just say that. He's gone on, he's written a number of books. All the President's Men was his first one. Wrote The Final Days, which was about Nixon's resignation. Really kind of a compelling book. Wrote The Brethren about, uh, the Supreme Court. Wrote Wired, which was about the John Belushi's death. He wrote four different books. And actually, uh, President Bush s- sat down and gave extensive interviews to him. And cooperate. He wrote four books during the the Bush administration, and you know he's he's gone. He's written a number of things. Well, no surprise, he has now written a book about the the Trump administration, and it's it's called Fear F E A R. It is coming out September 11th, so it it drops it drops next week. But the Washington Post has excerpts from this, and they quote generously from it. I want to. I want to share with you some of the, some of the excerpts, not not all, but I want to share with you some of the things that Woodward writes about the, the Trump administration, and predictably, it is not flattering. He he apparently tried to get President Trump to sit and interview, do an interview with him, and Trump refused and refused and refused. And then after the book was written, and apparently when the book was getting ready to come out, then President Trump said, well, maybe on second thought I should sit and talk to you. But by then it was too late. So this is not done with input from President Trump. Let me share with you a portion of the excerpts of what the Washington Post is is reporting. And again, the book itself drops next week. Headline, Bob Woodward's new book reveals a nervous breakdown of Trump's presidency. John Dowd, he was one of the attorneys for President Trump. John Dowd, he's also the guy that did the Pete Rose investigation into uh, gambling. John Dowd was convinced that President Trump would commit perjury if he talked to special counsel Robert Mueller. So on January 27th, the president's then personal attorney staged a practice session to try to make the point. In the White House residence, Dowd peppered Trump with questions about the Russia investigation, provoking stumbles, contradictions, and lies until the president eventually lost his cool. This thing's a blankety-blank hoax. Trump erupted at the start of a 30-minute rant that finished with him saying, I really don't want to testify. The dramatic and previously untold scene is recounted in Fear, a forthcoming book by Bob Woodward that paints a harrowing portrait of the Trump presidency based on in-depth interviews with administration officials and other principals. Woodward depicts Trump's anger and paranoia about the Russian inquiry as unrelenting, at times paralyzing the West Wing for days. Learning of the appointment of Mueller in May of 2017, Trump groused, everybody's trying to get me. Part of a venting period that shell-shocked aides compared to Richard Nixon's final days as president. A central theme of the book is the stealthy machinations used by those in Trump's inner sanctum to try to control his impulses and prevent disasters, both for the president personally and for the nation he was elected to lead. Woodward describes an administrative coup d'etat and a nervous breakdown of the executive branch with senior aides conspiring to pluck official papers from the president's desk so he couldn't see or sign them. 
Again and again, Woodward recounts at length how Trump's national security team was shaken by his lack of curiosity and knowledge about world affairs and his contempt for the mainstream perspectives of military and intelligence leaders. At a National Security Council meeting on September 19th, Trump disregarded the significance of the massive U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula, including a special intelligence operation that allows the U.S. to detect a North Korean missile launch in seven seconds versus 15 minutes from Alaska, according to Woodward. Trump questioned why the government was spending resources in that region at all. We're doing this in order to prevent World War III, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis told him. After Trump left the meeting, Woodward recounts, Mattis was particularly exasperated and alarmed, telling close associates that the president acted like and had the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. In Woodward's telling, many top advisors were repeatedly unnerved by Trump's actions and expressed dim views of him. Secretaries of Defense don't always get to choose the president they work for. Mattis told friends at one point, prompting laughter as explained Trump's tendency to go off on tangents about subjects such as immigration in the news media. Inside the White House, Woodward portrays an unsteady executive detached from the conventions of governing and prone to snapping at high-ranking staff members whom he unsettled and belittled on a daily basis. White House Chief of Staff John F. Kennedy frequently lost his temper and told colleagues that he thought the president was unhinged, Woodward writes. In one small group meeting, Kelly said of Trump, he's an idiot. It's pointless to try to convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. I don't even know why any of us are here. This is the worst job I've ever had. Reince Priebus, Kelly's predecessor, fretted that he could do little to constrain Trump from sparking chaos. Woodward writes that Priebus dubbed the presidential bedroom where Trump obsessively watched cable news and tweeted the devil's workshop and said early mornings and Sunday evenings when the president often set off tweet storms were the quote-unquote witching hour. Trump apparently had little regard for Priebus. He once instructed then-staff secretary Rob Porter to ignore Priebus, even though Porter reported to the chief of staff saying that Priebus was like a little rat. He just scurries around. Few in Trump's orbit were protected from the presidential insults. He often mocked former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster behind his back, puffing up his chest and exaggerating his breathing as he impersonated the retired Army General and once said McMaster dresses in cheap suits like a beer salesman. Trump told Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, a wealthy investor eight years his senior, I don't trust you. I don't want you doing any more negotiations. You're past your prime. A near-constant subject of withering presidential attacks was Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Trump told Porter that Sessions was a traitor for recusing himself from overseeing the Russia investigation. Woodward writes, mocking Sessions' accent, Trump added, this guy is mentally retarded. He's a dumb Southerner. He couldn't even be a one-person country lawyer down in Alabama. At dinner with Mathis and General Joseph F. Dunford, Jr., the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, among others, Trump lashed out at Senator John McCain. He falsely suggested that the former Navy pilot had been a coward for taking early release from a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam because of his father's military rank and leaving others behind. Mattis quickly surrected his boss, no, Mr. President, I think you've got it reversed. The defense secretary explained that McCain, who died August 25th, had in fact turned down early release and was brutally tortured during his five years at the Hanoi Hilton. Oh, okay, Trump replied, 
according to Woodward's response. It goes on and on and and on, but you you get the idea. According to Woodward, one of Trump's secretaries at one point in time decided to steal a letter off Trump's desk that the president was intending to sign to formally withdraw the United States from a trade agreement with South Korea. They later said that they removed the letter to protect national security, and Trump did not notice that it was missing, etc., etc. You get the idea. Um, extremely unflattering. Let me just read you one final excerpt. The book vividly recounts the ongoing debate between Trump and his lawyers about whether the president would sit for an interview with Robert Mueller. On March 5th, Dowd and Trump attorney Jay Sekulow met in Mueller's office with the special counsel and his deputy, where Dowd and Sekula reenacted Trump's January practice session. Dowd then explained to Mueller why he was trying to keep the president from testifying. I'm not going to sit here and let him look like an idiot. And you publish that transcript because everything in Washington leaks, and the guys overseas are going to say, I told you he was an idiot. I told you he was a dumbbell. What are we dealing with this guy for? John, I understand, Mueller replied. Later that month, Dowd told Trump, don't testify. It's either that or an orange jumpsuit. But Trump, concerned about the optics of a president refusing to testify and convinced that he could handle Mueller's questions, had by then decided other words. I'll be a real good witness, Trump told Dowd, according to Woodward. You are not a good witness. Mr. President, I'm afraid I just can't help you. The next morning, Dowd resigned. It goes on and on and on, but you get the, the general idea. Now, this isn't... This isn't Omarosa, you know, a reality show villain who, for inexplicable reasons, was given a job in the White House. You know, this is, I guess, I think a very, very well-respected journalist who has convinced people to talk to him, and this is the account, and it is not pretty. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you see this, and I've just tried to give you a flavor of what's going to be coming out in this book. Is this just another hatchet job, or is this some insight into a very, very dysfunctional presidency? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. 122, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. This is Tuesday. A new Supreme Court nominee goes before the Senate's Judiciary Committee. How did Brett Kavanaugh do during day one? Gene Miller dissects at 7.51 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. We'll talk a little bit about that coming up in about 15 minutes. Um, I, I shared with you some excerpts from the book Fear. I, I'm supposed to get a copy in the next couple of days, and, and this is one... I, I do intend to read because I do respect Bob Woodward. I mean, his politics aren't necessarily mine, but I, I mean, I think he's he he has great sources. I think that the books he has written in general tend to, while they take a certain perspective, they they, they tend to, in general, I think, be accurate. And this is clearly an, an unflattering portrayal. Of, of what goes on behind the scenes at the Trump administration. And you know what? I, I tend to believe it. I mean, and, and here's, here is what President Trump, I, I think, governs off of this chaos type of theory. And it, it is just, it is completely different from the style of management that I think most people use and the style of management that I guess I, I respond to. 
I would not work well in an environment where it was just complete and total chaos, where you had a, a boss that was just kind of bouncing around from moment to moment and you know was caught up in the, the momentary passions of whatever's going on in that minute and obsessed with stuff that was I, I guess not not on point for what we were discussing. I wouldn't do well in that. But obviously Donald Trump has succeeded over his career, perhaps sometimes in spite of himself, by embracing this kind of chaos theory of stuff that goes on. Do I believe these stories? Absolutely. Can can I see President Trump um, making fun of his aides behind their back? Yeah, I, I can I can see him doing that. Is that the type of management style that somebody like me would relate to? No, it's not. So, but at the same time, it is something that has worked for him. Now, I do think you know some of the aspects of the story, which I got to admit are a little bit scary, are the fact that you've got letters on his desk waiting for him to be signed. And you've got aides that are pulling, at least allegedly, pulling them off the desk because they know it's the wrong thing to do, hoping he's going to forget about it. That is that is not a good sign if that type of stuff is going on. And it, it does make you wonder how involved in day-to-day stuff President Trump is. At the same time, he succeeds with this, this chaos theory. I don't understand how people can work in that environment. I have been saying for the better part of a year, I don't understand what the heck Jeff Sessions is still doing. If I was if I was Jeff Sessions and the Attorney General and I had my boss on a daily basis or a weekly basis belittling me in that fashion, and, and Jeff Sessions doesn't need the money. He comes from a wealthy Alabama family and he's in his 70s. I would have said, Mr. President, I have clearly lost your, tu- your trust. I'm not putting up with this. You're on your own. Figure out how you're going to get another attorney general confirmed. I mean, I I would have quit a long time ago. I I don't know why it is that Jeff Sessions stays. But do I have do I have any doubt that Jeff Sessions is being mocked by Donald Trump behind his back? Heck, no. He mocks him to his face. So this I, I think this book is going to be interesting. Does it give us any insight beyond what we already know? I, I kind of doubt it. But once again, it, it does show that there's. We've got kind of chaos going on in the White House. Things seem to be going relatively well, despite or maybe because of the chaos. It's not the type of environment that I would respond well to, but it's what you're going to sign up for if you work for President Trump. It's 129, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, from Larry the Rock McCarran to Frankie Bago Donuts Winters to a Hall of Famer from the Lombardi years. Which was the best center in Packers history? Make your vote for center on the all-time Packers team now at WTMJ.com slash Green Bay 100. All right. This, this is what happens when you get involved in situations like this and there is a lot of money to be had. You may remember the story from last November. What happens is there's this young woman. Her name is Kate McClure, and her car breaks down like on an off-ramp of a freeway in Philadelphia, and there's a panhandler that's there. His name is Johnny Bobbitt, and he sees the car. It's broken down or run out of gas or whatever. The guy's panhandling. What he does is he he gives the gal 20 bucks so she can get gas. She apparently doesn't have any money with her. So he, he gives her $20 um, so she can get gas and move on. 
he says, you, you just don't worry about it. You don't owe me any money. That's fine. I'm glad to do this. I, I'm glad to be the good Samaritan. In this case, it's the panhandler who's the good Samaritan. Well, all right, long story short, the gal and her boy, her name is Katie McClure, and her boyfriend, his name is Mark D'Amico, they, they go back and they find him. They find the panhandler who helped him out. They, they give him the $20, and then they start talking to him. So then what they do is they go public with the, the story. He's a homeless guy who's got drug and alcohol problems, all these different things. They, they go they go public with this story, and it gets picked up on you know Good Morning America and the Ellen DeGeneres Show and all these type of things, and all the newspapers start writing about it. And what the couple ultimately does is they start a GoFundMe campaign for the panhandler, for, for Bobbitt. And the idea is to raise money so that he can have a home to live in, and his dream car is like a 1999 pickup truck. And so the idea is send us, you know, one of these GoFundMe things, send us money so, you know, we can we can get him back on his feet again, et cetera, et cetera. The GoFundMe campaign is a huge success. It, it works. They get 14,000 plus people who donate. And it donate, they donate, um, over 400,000 bucks. All right. So now you've got this GoFundMe thing that this couple have started for the benefit of the panhandler. It's got $400,000 in it. Now you would think, okay, this is going to be a feel good story. This is going to end really great. Oh, wonderful. Well, all right. This is perhaps predictable, but it doesn't end up well. Because there's been a major league brouhaha fight that has broken out between the panhandler and between the couple who started the, the GoFundMe campaign. And since it was their GoFundMe campaign, they're, they're the ones that are controlling the, the donations. Instead of a house, what the guy got was a camper that the couple bought, and they put the camper in their name. And so the guy was living on their property in the camper that they had purchased, but they put in, you know, his name. And he, he got, they, they, they gave him access to a car, but the car with the vehicle was also in, in their name. What the couple says is the couple says, look, you know, we, we had to start doing this because he was just peeing the money away. They say, we gave him $25,000, and and in the space of two weeks, he spent it all. He sent it to friends or gave it to relatives. He spent it on drugs. He just he just blew away $25,000, and so the couple says, we, we just started you know deciding to ration out th- this money because we thought that he was just going to blow it. Now, from his perspective, now he's saying, I don't know what happened to a lot of this money. I think maybe they took it from me. I think maybe they spent it on themselves. She's a secretary. Now, all of a sudden, she's driving around in a BMW. Now, he's got lawyers involved, and the issue is becoming what should happen to this money. Right now, out of the 400000 there's about one hundred dollars to $200,000 left. So now you've got the panhandler, Bobbitt, who has his own attorneys, they are suing in court for, number one, an accounting of the money, but number two, they want the balance of the money paid to them. The the couple who started this GoFundMe thing are saying, look, we're not the bad guys here. What's happened is we tried to give him, you know, we, we were trying to do the right thing, 
and ration out the money. Because if we gave him all $400,000, he, he'd be, he'd blow through it. He, he wouldn't have any of it. Well, now he's apparently out of the camper. He's living on the streets again. And this has become just a giant mess. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, last week, a judge said, you got to give the panhandler the money. And, you know, you, you got to give it to him. Um, and then they're going to look at whether or not there should be like a guardianship set up or something like that for somebody to supervise it. But the judge said, it's his money. They raised it for him. You should not be doling it out. The couple, though, they said, look, we're, we're trying to, we were trying to help him. If we gave him all this money, he would have just drank it up. He would have given it away. He would not have been any better off than where we started. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Obviously, the 14,000 people who donated to this GoFundMe campaign were trying to do a, a good thing. You thought, hey, I want to help this guy. But once you got this pool of money that was there, well, it became, you know, what what's the right thing to do? Do you fault the couple for not just giving this guy every dime up front? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Did the couple who started the campaign for the panhandler, do you think they were out trying to shaft him? Or is there some merit to maybe trying to control the flow of money? 414-799-1620, do you think these people were crooks? Or might they have been trying to do the right thing? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This story really doesn't have a happy ending. It was a feel-good story. Woman runs out of gas along the side of the freeway in Philadelphia. Panhandler gives her $20 so she can get gas. They come back, and they, they start talking to him. They tell the world about how they were helped by this good Samaritan. And then what they after this story takes off, they then start a GoFundMe campaign. They were originally trying to raise $10,000. They raised $400,000. The problem is you, 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 can, you can raise the money, but you've got this, this panhandler who has a drug and alcohol problem, who, who doesn't work, has all sorts of issues. And they say, well, we tried. We gave him money, and we'd give it, we gave him $25,000, for example. It was gone in a week. He, he gave it away to friends. He spent it on drugs. He spent it on booze. You know, he's back in rehab. And they said, we, we, we decided we just couldn't give him these huge chunks of money because it would all be gone. Well, now he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm concerned that they've stolen it from me. I want my money. And a judge last week ordered him to have it. Now, okay, maybe it's his, but do you fault the couple if, in fact, they were trying to ration out the money to make sure that it actually went for what they hoped the donations would go for. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Vincent. Uh, you know, I believe this couple, you know, uh, had, had had good in their hearts when they tried to help this homeless individual. But I, I, I believe once the GoFundMe account got to that amount of money, I think the fact is they should have went out and found an executor or a yeah. payee to be able to do this. They should not have they shouldn't have had control over this particular money that that that, that got into the GoFundMe account. I think they what they should have. We're, we're getting an executive. 
he controls this money. We don't control a dime of it. You know, and and so if the individual wanted money, they needed the, the executor and him needed right. to work out how much money he got. So no, I, I you know I don't fault them for for for, the, for trying to help him, and I understand what they're trying to do. But the fact is, is that the, the money got to a point where they they weren't they shouldn't have been in control in it. No. Yeah, and I don't think they I don't think they thought they were going to get four hundred thousand. Yeah. When they went in, they thought it was going to be ten grand, and I'm sure right. they thought we'll turn it over to this guy. All of a sudden, you've got four hundred thousand dollars, and it's where <laughs> no, thanks for calling. See, and this is this is I don't really think there's bad guys here either. This is sort of my take from from this on the outside. But it's why you have to be careful about these things. Number one, it's why. You, as a donor, have to be careful contributing to some of these things. You see the story on Good Morning America, or you read about it in the local newspaper, or you hear about it on the radio. Oh, I want, I want to send this guy, I want to send this guy, I want to have, I want to send money to help. Well, the problem is when, when you just participate this way, first of all, you don't know what's going to happen to the money. That, that's just the reality. It's not like you're giving the money to the Red Cross. I mean, it's not like you're giving the money to the American Lung Association. You're, you know, when, when you're giving it to individuals, you don't know what's going to happen to this particular thing. I, I mean, I agree with Vincent, and I, I think everybody, my sense is everybody kind of got in, in over their head. I mean, now maybe there's going to be evidence turning out these people were stealing the money. I don't think so. I, I think I think they legitimately went into this with the idea that they want to help the guy. All of a sudden, you get this pot of money that's there and then they start worrying about well all right th- this this man has all sorts of deep-seated problems that that money is not going to solve and, and that money is going to make worse because my guess is candidly that, that a lot of people who donated money through this gofundme campaign to help this guy they would have never given a dime if they knew that that money was going to end up in the pocket of some drug dealer and yet that is precisely what happened it, it it just it it is. They gave him money. He spent it on dope. All right. Well, if you would have said to you know Drew in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, hey, would you donate twenty five dollars to this guy so he can go out and buy cocaine? Well, of course you would have said no. So that's I mean that's the problem, and that's why once this took off, I mean I agree with I agree with Vincent. What they needed to do was set up some sort of right away. You get some lawyer involved. You get some sort of conservancy, conservancy, something going on to to control the flow. But this is this is the problem with these feel good stories, and it's why a lot of times I continue to believe that if you want to donate to something, even if you see this compelling and compassionate story on Good Morning America or the Today Show, you're still much better off giving it to an established charity because these are the type of things that can happen. Renee in Waukesha. Renee, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, when I first talked to your screener, I said, yeah, I wouldn't have given him the money either. But then when I thought about it, you know, I I don't think I'd want to be in charge of it. I would, like the Vincent said, get somebody else right. involved that could take care of it. Because this guy went through twenty five grand in one week already. You give him four hundred thousand dollars. What it's going to last two weeks, maybe three? Well, right, and it and they they knew. I mean, admittedly, the the guy himself says, "Yeah, I mean, I I, I took this money and I took what they gave me and I I spent it on booze and I spent it on dope." He's been through rehab, you know, twice since this whole thing happened. And again, if 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 the GoFundMe people, if the people who were donating, Renee, if if you saw this story. And you knew the guy was going to spend the money on on buying dope. 
you wouldn't have sent him a dime. It's just the reality. Oh, no, not even a penny. Yeah. Not even a penny. No. There are much better things that that money could go for than to somebody that took down drugs and alcohol. Well, well sure, exactly. Thank, see, this, and again, this is, this is what I find to be interesting about the story and why I wanted to donate a, a, devote a segment to it. I don't think my sense is that I don't think anybody's a crook here. I don't think this couple stole the guy's money, but I think they quickly got in over their head with this. And it is, I, I bring this up because it's a cautionary tale. When you decide that you are going to participate in some of these things, but it's the individual, it's the GoFundMe thing, you don't know what's going to happen to the money, and you don't know where the money's going to go, and you don't know what it's going to be used for, which is maybe one of the reasons why you want to be really, really careful before you send this this off. Now, again, I, I think ultimately somebody should have set up a trust for the man, but, you know, he's an adult. I mean, you just can't, you know, you he gets to decide. You know, theoretically, the money belongs to him, and I think the judge is right that whatever money is left out of this has to go to him. I, I think that's the case. He's not incompetent. He's not a minor. I think the money has to go to him, and my guess is that unfortunately, unless he decides that he's suddenly going to change his lifestyle dramatically, all this money that people gave is going to end up, you know, being kind of frittered away, which is unfortunate because the people who made the donations did it in good faith. But, I mean, bottom line is, when you see these compelling stories, be really, really careful with your money because you don't know for certain what's going to happen to it. 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 157, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. We're going to talk about the political you-know-what show that is going on today in Washington concerning the confirmation hearings of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. We're going to be talking about the political you-know-what show that went on at the funeral of John McCain over the weekend and a rainbow-colored intersection crosswalk, actually, in downtown Milwaukee. What is it all about And do we need it? That and a lot more is coming up. I do want to give you an update on something we talked about on Friday's program. In-N-Out Burger, which is a very, very popular chain of burger fast food restaurants, primarily on the West Coast, primarily on the West Coast, but extremely popular. They, The the owners of the company that owns In-N-Out, they are, heaven forbid, they are Republicans. And they give money to the Republican Party. Well, a couple of Democratic operatives in California found that out. And then the Democratic Party decided we're going to launch a boycott of in and out Burger because, heaven forbid, they, they actually, the owners might have chosen to give money to Republicans. And it wasn't like the owners were in your face. It's not like they were putting endorsements up in the restaurant or anything like that. They just happened to be Republicans. Apparently, what happened, though, is after announcing the boycott, it blew up big time in the face of the people who were trying to organize it. Pretty much everybody said, look, we like In-N-Out Burger. Leave the burgers alone. And they're not throwing their politics in our face. We should not decide not to patronize them because of this. That is exactly how I think most of us thought this should work out, that this idea that you're going to boycott stuff because the owners in a benign fashion, decide that they want to exercise their First Amendment rights. This isn't like a Robert De Niro going out and saying, you know, blank Trump, blank Trump. 
and people deciding, okay, I don't want to go to uh, Robert De Niro movies anymore. It's not even like the local businessman around here who sends out the monthly newsletters talking about how evil Republicans are. Okay, that, that's one. If you want to be in your face, that's fine. But just because you own a business and you choose to donate to Republicans or Democrats, that in and of itself I don't think should be disqualifying. All right, like I say, when we come back, we're going to talk about a rainbow crosswalk. We're going to talk about Brett Kavanaugh and much more. Stick around. It's 159. 209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I think Democrats in Wisconsin, mainstream Democrats in Wisconsin, back in... 2011, 2012, 2010, realized they made a huge mistake when they allowed the mob to take over. After after Act 10, you had this huge uproar. And I think there were a lot of people in the know who thought we should not push for a recall of Scott Walker because it's not going to work. And we're going to lose the public. But by then, you had recall fever going on. You had all the out-of-state agitators moving in. You had the college kids that were storming and taking over the Capitol. And the mob essentially drove this. And so then you had, again, I think a lot of the calmer voices that kind of got dragged along with this. And it, it ended up it ended up badly. That's just the result. You have something like that playing out now where you have the, the active left, the, the resist movement, which just hates everything that President Trump does. And so as a result, they, they hate everything that Republicans want to do, and, and everything has to be a life-and-death battle, even though not all battles are worth fighting, particularly the battles that you can't win. All right, so right now what's happening is you have Brett Kavanaugh, who is, I think, arguably – one of the most qualified people ever nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm saying that objectively based on his background. Here you have somebody that was in private practice. You have somebody that was a government lawyer. You have somebody who's been on one of the most prestigious court of appeals for years and years and years and has a lengthy track record of of writings. He is a mainstream conservative justice. He is the type of judge that you would expect a Republican president to appoint. Just like, um, I don't, I don't know if it was a Democrat, you would expect them to try to find a a mainstream sort of thing. He's not way out on the right wing fringe. He, He just, he just not. He's a solid judicial conservative that, you know, if you're going to go back and you know, kind of check out the boxes of what you would be looking for in a Supreme Court nominee. Now, admittedly, he, he's not the guy that, you know, left-wing Chuck Schumer would choose if he was choosing it, but that doesn't mean he's not a qualified person. So you have the hearings that started today, and we've been playing clips from the confirmation hearings. Bottom line is the Republic elections, as we often say, have consequences. I said this during the Obamacare debate years ago. The Republicans have 51 members of the U.S. Senate because now they're repl- uh, John Kyle is taking over the late uh, John McCain spot. So there's there, there's going to, there's enough votes. They're going to get him confirmed. That's the bottom line. But right now, what we're doing is we're looking at at theater. So today is the first day of the confirmation hearings, and what happens? They're delayed for an hour because. You have people from two issues. You have people from the gallery screaming and yelling 
and trying to disrupt things to the point that I think the last count I saw was either 12 or 20 people, two people that were arrested, you know, people that are out there screaming and it's, oh, this is going to end. Women are going to be dying right and left. You know, this completely and totally over the top reaction. And then you have the Democrats all on this committee who have announced that they're going to vote against him saying, well, we just got this. We got this document dump and this is terrible. Even though we're all committed to voting against him, we don't have enough time. Now, here's what this is all about. They have apparently he worked as White House counsel during the Bush administration. And in that capacity, there's documents in the National Archives that are under control because he was a lawyer in White House counsel's office. There is an attorney client privilege issue that, you know, President Bush had the right to control. Apparently, he's now waived that. So the committee has stuff. But but a lot of these documents are. It's internal legal advice. Uh, my guess is the vast majority of it is is nothing. Just you know, letters that have been signed because they've already turned over over four hundred thousand pages. So this is another forty two thousand. Most of which, my guess, is completely and totally benign. But now Democrats are screaming, "We don't have an opportunity to review this." And Republicans are saying, "Well, it, it's out there. You know, you'll have a chance to question him on it at some point in time." But but what you had going on today was kind of this this theater of the absurd, these efforts at let's try to disrupt, let's try to scream, let's try to shout this down. My my point of, is twofold. Number one, I don't think this is going to succeed. Number two, I think turning these hearings into a circus, just like turning the Act 10 debate into a circus, just like there was a backlash from that, I think the majority of Americans who are going to look at these hearings and watch this on the nightly news, seeing people screaming and shouting and being hauled out during these confirmation hearings, I don't think that makes them anti-Kavanaugh. I think instead it says, my gosh, you know, these people out there are nuts that are resisting this. This is not the way you behave. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should Brett Kavanaugh be confirmed, and will these tactics, the screaming, the shouting, the let's bring the resistance protest into the committee rooms, is that going to win anybody's hearts and minds outside, again, of that, that, that tribe that's out there that can't support anybody or anything that would come through the Donald Trump administration. 414-799-1620. I just see this as a huge backlash. It's not going to work, number one. But number two, I I think it turns average people off. You're going to watch the news tonight, and you're going to see, you know, an important confirmation hearing be turned into a political you-know-what show, and I think that turns off people. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, one of the things that's so, from my perspective as a recovering lawyer, one of the things that's so aggravating about this is that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is extremely qualified. Like I say, this this is a mainstream jurist, and you have, you know, a decade of writings you know, and decisions that he's had to, to review. You get an idea of whether he's qualified or not. Let's start with Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're first. Hello. Hey, afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Jason. Um, number one, absolutely, he should be confirmed. And number two, this is only a dog and pony show by the liberals to hopefully delay this thing after the midterms when they think that they're going to retake the House. 
and then after that, all bets are off. Yeah, so, but of course, it's not going to happen. I mean, it, it, it's just it's flat out not going to happen. I mean, we've talked to Ron Johnson. They, the Republicans have the votes, and I think even even those on the left understand they're not going to be able to stop this. You can have your tantrum, you can get on TV, but but at the end of the day. It, just like Obamacare, there wasn't anything Republicans could do because the Democrats had the vote. Right, exactly. So they're just hoping to drag this thing out, and maybe their taxes will work, which they won't. But no. you know, they think they will. So we'll just see where it goes. Thank, well, I mean, I, I don't. I see. I don't even think they think they will. I think this is this this purely. This is a a made for made for TV. Let's try to appeal to the the resistance element of this because they know there's going to be a vote. And I'll tell you, the thing is, you've got a handful of Democrat senators who are up for reelection this year in states that President Trump won overwhelmingly. And this this is this is a vote they don't want to take because on the one hand. All right. We've got our 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 voters in the state that support President Trump. And they voted for him overwhelmingly, and he still does well in some of these states. Um, we're running to try to get reelected in those states. But on the other hand, if we vote against Judge Kavanaugh, um, we'll, we'll irritate the voters in our state. If we vote for him, we're going to have all the people on the left, the resistance left, you know, they're going to be calling us turncoats or whatever because we you know we cross party lines to vote for him. It's a vote that at least three or four Democrats don't want to. Take four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I just think this is. I, I think it might be great political theater, but you you watch this and you just kind of shake your head and go, "What's going on?" Two eighteen. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's two twenty one. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Following a Labor Day walk off winner, Kristen Yelich and the Brewers look to take the series against the Chicago Cubs. Mister Baseball, Bob Euchre is on the call. Our Brewers game day coverage starts at six thirty five this evening. I still think this is. You know, I I have to admit I, I wasn't jumping off the bandwagon, but I had a I had my doubts. The Brewers were kind of slumping a little bit a few weeks ago, and they they seem to have righted the ship. I think you've seen some. You know, good pickups over the course of the last couple days, and uh, they're, I think they're in prime position, a game and a half ahead of St. Louis. But this is uh, these next two games are pretty big. They're, they're chasing Chicago by four games. If they have any chance at overhauling Chicago for the, the, the to win the uh, division, they, they probably need to win both of these games. Um, but but regardless, they need to keep winning to keep ahead of the other teams that are chasing them in the wild card thing. So that's just absolutely outstanding. Well, Gru, have you heard about the Rainbow Crosswalk? All right. Now, if you think about the city of Milwaukee and the issues that are facing it, let, let, let's, let's think these through. Lead in the water that's killing kids. People on the streets that are killing each other. High unemployment. You name it, there, there's all these different problems that are that are out there. Car thefts, crime, you, you name it. So what is one of the burning issues in the minds of some? The fact that the rainbow crosswalk has been stalled. Now you might say, Jeff, what are you talking about? Well, all right, Channel 4 had a report on this. For the last two years, members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community have been pushing the mayor and the Common Council to take a crosswalk at near Cathedral Square at Jefferson and Wells and paint it in the shape of a rainbow. It is apparent. Okay. 
Here's why. Apparently, this is intended as an effort to show that Milwaukee is an inclusive, inclusive community and that Milwaukee supports, uh, again, the interests of that community. And this particular location is chosen because it's, it's very close to um, one of the first gay bars that's been there for a long time. Well, it's, it's become controversial because the, they can't get approval. And so some people are turning on Mayor Barrett, who undoubtedly, I'm sitting there, Barrett is, and I, look, I'm a critic of Tom, but, but here's the bottom line. He's probably thinking, I got lead in the water. I, I'm trying to figure out how to get jobs into this community. I've got cars that are being stolen, you know, every 20 minutes. I've got shootings, and I got people bugging me for a rainbow colored crosswalk, you know, I, and I'm sure he would never say that, but he's got to be thinking that. So the question becomes, why aren't we giving in? Why aren't we having this rainbow-colored crosswalk? Are we not inclusive? Do we not? Are we not welcoming to the gay and lesbian and transgender community and stuff? Well, what what Milwaukee is doing is they're saying, look here, here here's the problem, and we we've been saying this before. The Federal Highway Administration has rules concerning the colors that are allowed to be painted in the crosswalk, and the problem is this is against. The, the Federal Highway Administration rules. They can't be these different colors. And we understand that in some other cities they've gone ahead and done this. And we would be curious to know what research have you done? How did these other cities get around the rule? And what they've said is, but, you know, we want to be supportive. So I tell you what, if you can come up with some other ideas, maybe like a rainbow-colored section of a sidewalk or something like that, we're willing to work with you. But otherwise, um, we want to collaborate here, but we want to find a solution that works for everyone. But at least for the moment, the rainbow-colored intersection is dead, not because the Common Council is hostile to that community, and not because the mayor, Lord knows, is hostile to the community, and not because everybody has a lot more pressing problems on their hands, but rather because, like the federal rules say, you, you can't have that. So at least for the moment... The rainbow-colored crosswalk is put on on hold. My advice to everyone would be, again, given all the real issues that are out there, including a lot of the real issues that affect people in the gay, lesbian, transgender, etc. community, it would seem to me your time would be a lot better spent trying to get attention to those real issues as opposed to Gee, we'd like to have a rainbow crosswalk on Jefferson and Wells. Just saying. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. The Packers have their 53-man roster set, and the Brewers are home for back-to-back series. Greg Matzik breaks it all down, and more tonight on Sports Central starting at 6.07. I I did have a a comment on the the Packers cutdowns. Now, I... I generally leave the sports stuff to Greg and Doug and the the other people who, you know, I'm just a fan. I just kind of follow that. But every once in a while, I, I see something that, that people say that just kind of makes me wonder what they could possibly, possibly be thinking. Now, I, I believe sports is entertainment, okay? So I, I, I get that, and I get that you want to celebrate but is Packers wide receiver, the rookie who's been trying to make it for a couple of years, Jake, I think it's Kumaro, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, he, he made the team 
but he's on the injured reserve list. And a couple games ago, he catches a, a pass, and he's heading into the end zone. This is the game August 16th against Pittsburgh at Lambeau Field, and he's going to score a touchdown. And he decides he wants to be a hot dog. So instead of just running into the end zone, spiking the ball, doing the Lambeau leap or whatever, he gets to the end zone and he does a somersault. All right? All right, kind of cool. Does a somersault. Problem is, the moron hurts himself. You know, wrecks his shoulder by doing the, the somersault. And so now he, he's made he's made the team, but he's on injured reserve because he, he can't play, which means he's out for the first eight weeks. Now, I... I, I that's fine, and it's unfortunate, but one of the things that just always drives me crazy, when I see these different celebrations, for example, in the, the end zone, and people are piling on each other, I'm thinking, what's going to happen to the guy at the bottom of the pile? You know, do they get hurt? So Kumaro, this is the thing. Now, okay, this is a guy who's been trying to make an NFL team for, for years, okay? He's got the NFL team made, but now he's hurt himself because of, of what he, he did. Um, he, he's now he's doing an interview saying, hey, I'm all excited about this. But what he says is, you know, if I had this to do over again, I'd do it all again if I had a chance. To which you just want to say, what? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you, you were just going to score. You're on the injured reserve list because you screwed up your shoulder by doing a somersault. If you would have just gotten into the end zone, given the ball, Everything would have been fine, and you do it over again. Now, look, I, I think it's great that he made the team, and apparently, hopefully, he'll be able to help the Packers in the second half of the year. But my advice would be, all right, learn from your mistakes, and maybe next time just score, give the referee the ball, do the Lambo leap, and skip the somersault. I'd do it again if I had a chance. What can you say? Two thirty-one. Let's go to the WTMJ. What can you say, Eric? Builds that. I mean, it's just like I got nothing. <laughs> you know, okay, you hurt yourself doing the somersault, and then I'd do it again if I got the chance. Hmm. Hmm. Learn from your mistakes. That's one of my. That's one of my Wagner's rules of life. Never make the same mistake twice. Learn. Stay on your feet. It's 2.36, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Um, I I watched over the weekend the the funeral for Senator John McCain, who I consider to be an American hero. And I, I do, I, I think there were many things that you would have liked to have thought that when he was candidate Trump, President Trump would have taken back or would have regretted, he said. And, and I think, you know, his comments about John McCain and, how I, I like heroes and heroes don't get shot down. I, I think that was really kind of, that was unforgivable. There, there's just there's no question about it. And I understand that Senator McCain was a contrarian, a prickly personality. I understand that there were you know he 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 was not somebody. He marched to his own drumbeat. I, I think that's what to say. But that that doesn't change the fact that I think he was somebody who devoted his life to public service and was I, I think in every sense of the word an American hero. And it's. It, it's unfortunate that upon his passing, there was still so much animosity between the president and between the the, the McCain side. I, I watched the funeral. I thought it was, I thought it was touching. I thought it was appropriate. I, I guess if if anything, his daughter Megan, and far be it for me to tell somebody how to, to grieve at a funeral. I, I thought she gave a very very impressive eulogy. There were a couple points in it where. 
she clearly decided to use that as an opportunity to take digs at, at President Trump, and and maybe she was challenging her her late father. I mean, for example, you know, she said America of John McCain had no need to be made great again because it was always great. And I guess, I, again, I would never tell anybody how how to grieve, but I, I think by deciding to inject that politics and maybe she felt that's that's what her father would have wanted her to say i i think you know again she made it herself controversial when she did that and then of course you've got president trump never one to allow a slight to go by after that you know he sends out a text saying a tweet saying make america great again in capital letters and and then the, the whole thing is just you're off to the races and all this at at some point in time, I think we need to put aside kind of some of the, the petty stuff and concentrate on, on the big issue that we face as a country. And if we were able to do that, maybe it would be a better world. All right. Uh, there is an election coming up in November. Yeah, got a governor's race you've got a race for u.s senate around here congressmen you know local offices all sorts of things going on um mayor tom barrett today announced that the city of milwaukee will be more than doubling the number of early voting locations in the city they're going from three locations to eight locations um early voting will start on september 24th and it will extend up to Immediately before the election, I'm not sure exactly what day they, they end up cutting that off. But the idea is you can start voting on September 24th if you want. Now, the mayor, because he can't help himself, he says that he, he wants to do this because he, he wants to try to circumvent efforts of state government to make deliberate attempts to make it harder for people to vote, including voter ID laws. To which you kind of like heavy sigh, you know, shrug. Come on, really, Tom? Can't, can't you get past that? But he, he does point out that the number of people who have taken part in early voting, um, 5,000 in the 2000 election, 53,000 in 2016. Under state law, you were, have always been able to vote absentee. But it used to be that you had to vote on election day unless you were willing to certify that you were either you were both unable and unwilling to to vote with with the operative thing being unable I'm out of town or whatever that is of course changed so now in the city of Milwaukee for example starting on September 24th you can go in and and you can vote now of course if you vote on September 24th and something happens you want to change your mind it's very very difficult to do that not necessarily impossible, but it's it's difficult to, to do that. But the idea is to make it easier for people to vote. I have always, I have always liked, and I've said this before on the radio, I love voting on Election Day. I, I just do. I, I love, I think it is such a quintessentially American thing. You go to the polling place, you stand in line with your fellow citizens, you provide your photo ID, you get your ballot, you go in, you fill it out, you put it in that machine. I, I, I've always, I've always loved that. And I, I think all things being equal, I will still always do that. All things being equal. I mean, in the primary election, my, it was the first time my wife and I were voting in a, you know, our, our new polling place and stuff. And we went over there and it was, it was very, very cool. I, I still, I, I like it, but there is a convenience. I have to, uh, I have to say, there is a convenience to early voting. 
to make sure that you're you're going to get it done. You're not going to get hung up, and you're not going to have to wait in line if you've got you know other things to do. There is a convenience to early voting that I think does have an appeal. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you a fan of open voting, of early voting? And and by the way, I don't I don't think that this cuts along, you know, partisan lines as much as some people do. I I just I mean, I understand there's some people who think well, this is kind of the effort to get, you know, one set of voters, Democrats, more likely to, you know, if you can get them to vote early, they're not as motivated to go to the polls on Election Day. I don't think that I, I buy that. I think both parties are doing a much better job nowadays of identifying their voters and getting those votes in early, because then you don't have to worry about making phone calls and driving people to the polls if it's snowing or if it's raining in November. I still like going to the polls on Election Day. But I know, I know there's more and more people who are just becoming, who just like the convenience of being able to say, all right, you know, it's a Tuesday afternoon in October. I can vote and I can get it done. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you a fan of early voting or have we gone too far in allowing people to start voting September 24th in the city of Milwaukee, for example. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 244. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Mayor Barrett announcing that in the city of Milwaukee, you will be able to vote in the November election starting September 24th, and they're expanding the number of locations from 3 to 8. I don't have, I actually don't have an issue with this. And I don't think, I don't think this benefits one particular side as much as some people do. Now, obviously, a heavy turnout of early voters in the city of Milwaukee, that will tend to be more Democrat, but Republicans are going to be turning out voters in other parts of the state as well. So I think the more interesting question to me is, is early voting a, a good thing? It, it always used to be, other than the absentee ballots, which were kind of a pain to get, you, you know, you, you had to show up on Election Day and you had to vote. I love everything about showing up on Election Day, but there is a value to convenience. Are you an early voter and do you prefer doing it that way? 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Joan in McGuanago. Hi, Joan. Hi. All right. Early voter or no? Yes, absolutely. I I think that it, it helps people to vote. It gives it another um, way to get it, your vote out there. I I said I I sometimes didn't vote because it was not convenient or I didn't get to it or something. Not well, you see a line. Vote. You're driving by. It's that Tuesday. It's election day, yeah. and you've got a, you got all sorts of errands to run, and there's a line, and you say I don't have 20 minutes to stand in line. Sure. Yeah, and I want to vote, but this just makes it just so much easier. So, do you do this? Are you a regular early voter then? Yes. Okay. Good enough. No, thanks for the call. I, you know, it's funny. I was talking to, I was talking to somebody who was saying, "Well, I'm not sure I like the early voting thing because I, I, I never know what exactly happens to my ballot." And I said, "Well, you know, I look at, I, I said, what do you think's going to happen to your ballot? I mean, I'll tell you what happens to your ballot. You put it in that envelope, they seal it, and then on election day, either in the morning or afternoon or in the evening when the polls close, some poll worker feeds it all into that same machine as that machine that you are feeding it into. It that's just kind of." 
how the whole thing ends up working. I, I'm not concerned about, you know, fraud elements. I, I think your, your vote ends up counting. To me, it's just a convenience thing. Let's see. Uh, here's our text. I think early voting is great. As a construction worker, my schedule can be hard to predict. It's nice to have more chances to make it to the polls. Um, that's, you know, that's the idea. Uh, let's see another text. I'm not a fan of early voting unless someone has a legitimate excuse like military or out of the country. Like I say, that's how it used to be years and years ago for absentee ballots. You had to be unable to get to the polls on election day. Here we go. The more options we make to vote, the more chances of issues and complications. Yeah, I don't know. 414-799-1620. I, I do think, and again, I, I understand if you are a conservative and you believe that, gee, you should have to prove who you are before you vote. You're, you're automatically accused of being somebody who wants to suppress votes. No, I, I, I don't believe that at, at all. I mean, I, I, I think the whole idea is that, you know, you just have to have some legitimacy. But by making it easier for people to vote, as long as it's people who are entitled to vote, I don't have an issue with that. Jamie in Brookfield. Jamie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Jamie. Yeah, I am, I'm always out of town. Uh, for bow hunting, that's the uh, perfect uh, deer season for me. So, right. uh, submitting my vote, I mean, my my opinions are already formed way before uh, the voting day, typically. Yeah, I mean, you right. It's and, and that's what some people say. I mean, obviously, maybe if there's some huge scandal or something that erupts yeah. the week before the election, but in in general, you're. You you know you know whether you're going to vote for Governor Walker or Tony Evers, for example. Exactly. I think most people. I think that's kind of baked into the pie right now. I yeah. don't think there's too many undecided people. So, yeah. do you regularly then early vote? Uh, almost every primary election. Okay, I'm up north. Yeah, and then the spring election, I'll even sometimes do that because it conflicts with uh, other seasons. So, yeah, uh, if I can get up north, I'm up north. But uh, I still like to vote. Got it. No thanks. Well, I will tell you. And again, I. It, now, I want to be honest here, because even though I, I love, like, Election Day going, and I love that the Election Day voting, which I did for the primary, like the Fran and I went up there, the nonpartisan primary in April, I early voted because I, I was just, I, I was going past the place where you, you did it. I had a little bit of time, and I thought, you know, I just want to get this out of the way. So I pulled in, and I did it, and it took me all of, like, three or four minutes to vote, and I knew the vote got accounted. So it was it was a matter of convenience. But I'll tell you, I still, especially for the, the main election days in, in November, voting for the president, I, I, I remember, uh, true story, my late wife, it's no secret, our politics were not the same. She was a poll watcher, a lawyer, but she was a poll watcher. And, you know, she, she would come back and tell stories about, for example, the 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 passion that people had back in 2008 to run out and vote for Barack Obama. And it was, you know, that, that it is, it was sort of like life affirming, even though I didn't vote. I voted for John McCain, not Barack Obama. But I, I appreciate the sentiment and, you know, being the first African-American president. I get it. David in Appleton. David, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, David. I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with you more. Okay, about what? And, what what aspect? Your, the the early voting and and your news story you just had is a perfect example. Tom Barrett in predominantly Democratic Milwaukee is opening even more places for right. voting early and often. And I'm from the Fox Valley and up here, predominantly Republican. We don't have it that many places because we're responsible adults and we show up and vote when you're supposed to vote. Well, now you say early and often. Early, yes. Often, not necessarily. I mean, but. I'll tell you, David, the Republican Party of Wisconsin 
does an absolutely great job of targeting people. That's one, been one of the successes over the last several years and getting them out, getting people out to vote early, knowing that, you know, if you can get your voters out there. I mean, to, to me, it's, it's just this ground game. I mean, you can't take it for granted, but you, you gotta, you gotta be out there. I, I don't know that I think it really benefits one party more than the other. Well, let me ask you this. How okay. can, I can vote on September when? When does it start? September? Well, Milwaukee, it's September 24th. I don't yeah, know when it Milwaukee is in Milwaukee, September 24th. And so I go out and vote September 24th at uh, 314 John Street. Right. And then I move to 318 John Street and go back and vote on, uh, you know, October 2nd. Well, I don't, I mean, David, I, I mean, look, I, in, in the scheme of voter fraud, I, I think, I think that's a, a small thing. I think the, 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 the better argument against this would, would be if the city of Milwaukee, for example, would have longer hours than, and I don't, and I, that used to be possible. I don't know if they still allow that or not. Don't know if you could still have, you know, longer hours and some people can be open Saturdays and some can't. But I mean, I, I, I do, I do get the fact that the better argument to me is that, well, you can take Democratic strongholds and it's not just City Hall. There's all these different there's all these different places. Bottom line, though, is I really I don't think at the end of the day that makes that much difference. I think it is incumbent on the political parties to get their voters out. And as long as you prove who you are, I'm I'm satisfied with that. I think. You know, and, and again, maybe some political scientists are going to disagree with me. I, I think over time, the the Republican versus Democrat stuff. I don't think that has too much of a change. If it makes it more convenient for people to vote, I'm all in favor of it. Two fifty four, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As long as you can prove who you are. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind. Please stick around.